This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. We're on vacation this week, but we hope you'll enjoy this compilation of a couple of our favorite interviews from the PW Radio Archives. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got David Friend on the line. His new book is The Naughty 90s, The Triumph of the American Libido. David, so glad you could join us. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So we're talking about the history of a lubricious decade, the 1990s. Uh, I think when people sort of think about the, the naughtiest decades of the 20th century, that's maybe not the one that comes to mind. What led you to, to focus on this um, rather than, say, the, the, the more familiar excesses of the 60s and 70s? Well, the 20s were pretty wild, too. True. Um, no, I, I really, I, you know, a, there was a coming of age of the people who were in the free love 70s. And by the 90s, they'd grown up and their value system, the, the, the values of the counterculture had really become the values of the culture. And so I was seeing, as I was living through the 90s and then looking back thereafter, this sort of sense of um, boomers having taken over in Washington for the first time in Hollywood on Madison Avenue. And here was this um, sort of percolating sexuality in the culture, uh, this sort of sense that we everything had moved a little bit left. Um, there was uh, this uh, what, you, what was called at the time a culture war going on between the, the far right and mainstream America and really the values of left-wing America, although Clinton called himself centrist. And you really had this um, you know, this new thing called the internet that was, you know, sort of sexualized with people having these chats all in the early, early days of the World Wide Web, which started in 1992. You had um, a sexual overlay almost on culture as you had tabloid shows and tabloid coverage all the time and 24-7 news for the first time with Fox and MSNBC coming aboard to have a, a war really with CNN, which had been around for a while, but here you had a 24-7 news cycle. So people really wanted to see the public officials, personalities, celebrities, and private individuals were being, their, their sex lives were being studied and dissected. And we really had to confront this as a culture, and, and especially in the decade after AIDS, when people began to be to, to talk about, I mean, after the the uh, discovery of AIDS and the outbreak of the epidemic, where people were forced to really, uh, throughout the 80s, look at address sexuality in very real ways at their homes, at the, and at, over the dinner table, at churches, at schools. So I think there was this, um, um, uh, this these undercurrents in Puric, otherwise Puritan America puritanical America that began to arise, and, and you saw this in, in a sort of scandal-ridden culture. Was there a point in that decade that, that just kind of got you started on this? You know, it's weird. I I, I, I was raising two kids who, who you know, uh, who my daughter was doing sit-ups every day because she wanted ashboard, washboard abs like Britney Spears, you know, she, she, she was a preteen, and and uh, she wanted to get belly rings and, uh, you know, wear these these low-slung jeans that, my, that everyone was having. And, and she, my son was playing these massive multiplayer video games with late at night on the Internet. I don't know what the heck he was doing. And it just sort of seemed like as an apparent, like as, you know, as a parent in the 90s, I was saying, boy, the culture is moving so fast and they're getting bombarded with sexual imagery, imagery from MTV to elsewhere. 
So that was happening. And then I sort of was making a transition. I was at Life magazine. I was a director of photography there. It was here, here I was at a middle American, uh, middle of the road, quasi-conservative, picture-driven general interest magazine. And then Graydon Carter hired me in 1998 to come aboard Vanity Fair. This was a picture-driven general interest magazine, but it was really to the left. It was really cosmopolitan and it was urbane and it was much a much different kettle of fish than Life magazine was. And I think that's what the culture was doing, shifting to, it was shifting to a more open, progressive, and um, uh, or a majority of the people in the culture were, were, were taking on the values that Vanity Fair was discussing unless the quote-unquote family values that uh, were being, you know, would, might have been embraced by, by a Life magazine. So I was making that pivot uh, at, at a similar time, and the day I started the job, Graydon Carter called me in his office because he knew I used to do a lot of we worked together at Life for a while, and he knew I used to do a lot of exclusives when I would, as a news reporter and a news editor and then the picture editor. And he said, let's go see if we can get to Monica Lewinsky. And in 22 days, I had set up, I managed to set up this exclusive for Vanity Fair with Herb Ritz photographing Monica Lewinsky during the, uh, the days of the scan, quote-unquote, the scandal with... Uh, Bill Clinton, or you know, revealing that they'd had a long-term relationship going on. So I wasn't in Kansas anymore, and I think that's where I was during that period. So uh, we're talking, as you mentioned, Bill Lewin Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky. Um, he also had this uh, relationship with Jennifer Flowers that came out, and and this was all still being regarded as quite a scandal, uh, even in in this sort of maybe more progressive, more uh, sexually open decade. And there was also a lot of backlash against very sexual films. Uh, I've, I vividly remember the discussion around uh, Basic Instinct and Fatal Attraction. And so how how was this clash, this culture clash playing out where you know, maybe you weren't in Kansas anymore, but Kansas was still in Kansas and didn't necessarily like the way everything else was going? Well, it's still being played out, you know. So, so what you had was this, this this war that was being set up. The key issues were not necessarily what was going on 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 the movie screen or on your what today on your smartphone. The key wars w were should, should there be marriage equality in the '90s? You had for the first time uh, a, a state, Vermont, that allowed same-sex couples not only to marry but to be recognized by the state and it could not be changed by the federal government that would change under the Defense of Marriage Act and, and others afterwards but today it's the law of the land the other war that was being fought was for for um, a woman's right to choose and for the first time in the de in that decade more women 56 more Americans 56 percent of them believed in reproductive choice and uh, and were in favor of the right to an abortion, even though it was the law of the land to, to uh, any woman had the right for to ha have an abortion. We're still f having that fight right now because of the, uh, the forces in uh, state and local governments uh, and laws that are going through the courts right now. So there was this real uh, battle and, and, and you had a lot of violence at abortion clinics uh, and health centers throughout uh, the 90s with the first murders, although in the 80s you'd had a lot of, uh, of attacks and, and a lot of confrontation. It wasn't until the 90s that people who actually, six people were actually, were, uh, nurses, doctors, and healthcare workers were actually shot and killed by uh, members of the, of the far, uh, of the uh, anti-abortion movement. So, those, you know, the LGBT rights is that, you know, now we, it's, it's, it's again, the law of the land, but you, we're, there's still a rear guard action that we're fighting and, and had been fighting then with the death of Brent Natina, uh, a, a trans, um, uh, man who, who had, uh, uh, who, who was killed early on in the decade and then, 
became the basis of the movie The Crying Game. Uh, Boys Don't Cry. The, I'm sorry, did I say The Crying Game? Uh, Boys Don't Cry. And then um, the death of uh, Matthew Shepard, mm-hmm. who, uh, who was uh, crucified in Wyoming uh, in, in a hate crime. And within a couple of months, you had the hate crimes bill that we now have and we're now talking about again. Should we be strengthening the hate crimes bill in the aftermath of Charlottesville? So I think we're still fighting those fights. And I think it's, um, you know, it's still a very much a divided nation. And I I was a teenager in the 90s, so I was sort of seeing this from the, the opposite perspective from what you were. And I remember... There was a write-up in the newspaper of my about my school nurse because she dared to have condoms in the the bathroom of the nurse's office where any student could come take one. So, teen sexuality was also really being legislated and discussed, and there were many opinions about it as well. Yes, there was a real change in at the beginning. That Rolling Stone did a piece on this, and you're you're right. There was this this sense of well, you know. When should condoms be handed out? When should needles be handed out? Um, uh, There was a a sea change. Uh, At the beginning of the decade, according to Rolling Stone, there were zero um, um, lesbian and gay societies in high schools. There were just none, uh, either local or nationally. I think by the end of the decade, there were some 300 where people could come out to their peers and feel they had a safe place to be themselves. Um, this was a real shift in the 90s where there was beginning to be this acceptance of one sexual orientation among young people. The other change in the 90s, of course, big one, was hooking up. People had done that a bit in the 80s, but, but now dating was on the wane, and you had really people who, who were hanging out among friends in groups and and there were more more there was more opportunity for um, sexual exploration sexual exploration and there was less you know sort of sense of commitment it was sort of a uh, and I think we're we 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 went through that period of of um, uh, uh, for, for quite a while and now what we're seeing and I think this just came out in the Atlantic last month a wonderful article about. A sort of a sea change in 2008 when the economy changed and adolescents, post-adolescents, uh, when they'd left college or co- would come back and live at home because the job market was so difficult for young people, uh, young adults. And you also had a breakthrough where 50 in 2008, where 50 percent of all um, young people now had smartphones. Mm-hmm. And what you had was this isolation, and people were falling asleep with their phones and wake. And it's true today, waking up with their phones, and they're more isolated. Their, their conversations and their connections with people are virtual, and not uh, they're not really gathering as they had in the '90s and previous generations. And there is a real has been a real. There's a, been a decline in in sexual activity, a decline in. Um, Dating even further, a decline in, in really human interaction um, uh, among uh, people who, in other in other times, might uh, begin the beginning of, of human intimacy. So I think we're. I hate it sounds a little depressing, but it's really a. I think um, a devolution in how young people can uh, can understand how to connect with others. As good, as important as the internet is, important as these devices are, and important as as uh, to, to fostering communication, there's also sort of stunted growth and delayed adolescence, prolonged adolescence. So, going back to the '90s, what was mm-hmm. the turning point in the '80s that kind of led to a lot of these developments? You know, that's a hard one. I think it was probably Ronald Reagan. Uh, and probably the triumph, really, of that we're still seeing today of um, the values of deregulation and an agenda that had been started by Barry Goldwater, possibly in the 60s, when 
we re- there was a sense that you know wait we need to be more conservative we need to have less government we need to have less regulation and rules and 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 yes you know there was this you know in in the late 80s the fall of of communism um in in the eastern bloc so i think a lot of those changes were were triggered other changes that would happen in the 90s and there was this pendulum swing then for this young progressive person to Bill Clinton but also Al Gore and also come 92 after the Anita Hill uh, hearings with uh, Clarence Thomas hearings at which Anita Hill uh, spoke about sexual harassment at the at the workplace in the in in the Supreme Court nominees hearings that many, many women for the first time were, were running for office. And there was a lot of change then. I think it, part of it was a counter-reaction to the, the the sort of overreach on the part of the right during this long period of the 80s. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with David Friend, author of The Naughty 90s, and we're talking about various events that precipitated uh, uh, the naughtiness of the 90s. One thing you talk about is uh, the media and uh, throughout the book, what role did media play during this time? Well, you know, we've talked a little bit here about the importance of the Internet and television, but I, I think maybe the key, two key things happened. I think in the 70s, you had three things that occurred. One was the established, there was this tabloid war that started when Rupert Murdoch started the National Star, it was called it at the time, but the Star, which was then fighting with the Inquirer. And there was, you know, scandals every week in, 19, in, in, the, in the 80s, in the 70s. Um, this was quickly followed by Rupert Murdoch buying the New York Post, and the New York Post became this overheated scandal sheet, and then that model, which had come from Australia and the UK, was now repeated across the country. Also in the early 70s was this new phenomenon, People Magazine, a magazine about human personalities and celebrities, and this was so tawdry in people's mind. What was this? Well, it was really a lot of good journalism in people, but this was a new way to look at history and, and current events was through the eyes of, of people. This was such a radical, crazy thing. And that whole tabloidism then grew in the 80s and then became part of television in the 90s. You had tabloid television. And I think it was Thomas Mallon, the novelist, who said, you know, used to be quoted by David Camp in a Vanity Fair article called The Tabloid Decade when he was writing about the 90s, that suddenly you had this era, this era in which this, the, the uh, gossip, which used to be in you know, a tabloid newspapers used to be a smudgy ride a smudgy read on the on the train while you're commuting was now delivered to your home like a public utility like water or electricity you know would get scandal all the time 24/7 if we wanted it so that was one thing and then i think the 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 hard right was really i, I in the book i call them the four horsemen hard right you had in four different media uh, mediums very different uh, powers on the right. One was uh, Rush Limbaugh, who was on the radio waves and became extremely important nationally at the end of the 80s and early 90s, and one of the one of the key anti-Clinton voices. Uh, this was his shtick, um, uh, and still is. The second you had uh, in, uh, in print, David Brock, who would write constantly about takedown pieces, which he now admits were virtually character assassinations of Anita Hill and Hillary Clinton and others. 
Uh, he's now working on the left instead of the right. Um, thirdly, you had Roger Ailes, and we've talked about Fox TV, but Fox News does. Fox News, it started in 1996 and rode the coattails of the Clinton-Lewinsky relationship to, to, to new heights and new profits for Fox News, and now has really become the uh, house organ of the Republican Party. And fourth, you had a guy in, in a trinket shop in, in CBS, Trinket shop in Hollywood who was sending out this new newsletter in 96 called The Drudge Report. And he was really the first on the right to be able to effectively take this new medium of uh, the internet and conflate or confuse or in, in, inflate uh, gossip and put it cheek by jowl with news items. And so you'd have these opinion pieces and these these pieces from the from you know very suspect uh, columnists and suspect websites and he led the way to what they now and from Breitbart onward. So we're talking about the internet as the source of scandal. Uh, there was a, a lot of discussion about the internet as a source for pornography, immortalized in a song in the musical Avenue Q. And uh, there, there was, That's I remember, right. a great deal of conversation about, at the time, how dangerous it was. Again, from my perspective as a teenager, um, I was hearing a lot about how dangerous it was that kids were going to have access to this stuff. How How does that sort of jibe with what you were talking about in more recent trends where people now see being on the internet as almost antithetical to sexual connection, to what you were calling human connection, though I don't know that those are necessarily the same thing. Yeah, I mean, why do you need, a, in the old days, you really did to, to understand what sexuality was about. You got your information from your peers, your four from older siblings or relatives or from parents or from uh, schools you, or, or you, you really did get it from live human beings or, or and from experimenting. Now the whole human smorgasbord of sexuality is available to people at too early an age and they don't understand what they're seeing and they don't and we as adults don't understand it either. It's just this all these crazy kinks it's for the first time in in this history of this human species, we can tap into any single sex act we want in a second, and we and we, we sort of decontextualize and dehumanize. So a lot of people learn their first uh, learn about intimate acts through uh, an inanimate object, and or through virtual representations of sexuality instead of. Um, you know the the real world and the real connections with people, and I think that has to necessarily color um, how people react in the real world. And and there's just and and, and it I think has led to a, a certain lack of intimacy, a lack of empathy, a la a a people who are people who are young people and and, and old who are more at sea about. Um, how to connect in in real time? They're they're concerned often about um, their own satisfaction and not those of others, and they're concerned more about sex than they are about love. And how does that jive with the increased access for, for example, trans teenagers or queer teenagers who are in places where physically they might be isolated from community, but they can find it online? Well, that's one of the benefits. I mean, I do think that uh, you have com you have information. This is one of the great things about the internet, from having information or ability to organize or to to, to um, you know everything from the Arab Spring to the communities you're talking about. So, yeah, I mean that's that's terrific. But I think the def definition of sexuality in the '90s was different. That there was much more of a binary choice. People were outed. Politically, they had to make a decision. In, you know, you are, you are gay. Why don't you say you are gay? You are straight. Why don't you say, why don't you make this? You know, we, people had to take sides in, in when in, in an era when when ignorance about sexuality was leading lead to death in many cases. Now there's a, we have this fluid 
sense of, of gender and of sexual identity and it's a very healthy thing and it's a very but it's a very complex thing so having these communities um it brings more uh, assistance and and guidance in 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 uh, among people who are grappling with with uh, with finding out who they are so how did you go about researching a book about sex? You actually wrote a, a soapbox on this for PW, which uh, was very entertaining and included a, a great chance encounter with a great writer. Do you want to recap that for us here? Oh, God, everybody reads PW, so maybe I should have to say <laughs> it on the radio, because everyone has read. No, thank you for re- 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 referencing that. No, I, you know, I spent four years uh, researching and writing and reading and interviewing. I interviewed about 260 people for the book, and, and then it took about three years to write it because I have a day job. You know, I'm working at Vanity Fair, and and, uh, and, and it for, for, have been for the last 19 years, so I needed to do it. But, but what, right at the beginning of the process, my wife and I are standing online to see a movie. Uh, I think it was George Hamilton, the movie George Hamilton's fan. I forgot the movie. It was about his mother, and, and so George had invited us. And uh, he's a friend of ours, and and it was at the Paris Theater here in New York, and we're standing on uh, in the line, and standing next to uh, um, Gay Talese and his wife Nan, and famously, uh, Nan is just one of the great literary editors uh, in New York, and Gay, one of the great founders of the new journalism uh, in the seventies and and thereafter. And he'd written this book in the seventies uh, on um, called "Thy Neighbor's Wife," and so this was a book that was exploring sex in that decade. And there was a little parallel there. And my wife leaned over to—we didn't know them. I know I know Gay and interviewed him for the book actually, but we didn't. I didn't know Nan, nor did my wife knew her from publishing. She's my publisher at Penguin. She has her own imprint, Nancy Paulson Books, a children's imprint at Penguin. And she just said to her, um, uh, describe the book, and Nan said something to the effect of, well, get ready for a journey. So it was a journey. But that's what, we, that's what I did. And my wife was just great in allowing me to spend all this time absorbed in, in you know, the, the, the trenches, as it were. You have a chapter on uh, called the Bubba Boomer, uh, talking, starting, starting off with Bill Clinton, who uh, you talk about represented, became a symbol of the perpetually horny, uh, ever prevaricating, irrepressibly optimistic masculinity. Um, it, it seems to, something that seems to be continuing to this day. What was going on then? Well, I think, you know, I think in the 80s you had these macho, you know, you had Rambo and 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 Rocky and Reagan and and you you know the, this is the you know this this sense of of virile American power and and I think you know Alan Alda in the seventies and and you, you didn't have this you, you know men were trying to get in touch with other sides of themselves too and come the nineties you had strangely this thing that became the Clinton embodied but also um, I mean, he, no one was was going out emulating Bill Clinton in ways they were emulating Ronald Reagan, uh, I think. But but I I think there there was this sense there was a, there was a description of the New South magazine called the Oxford American, which started in the nineties, and the Oxford American tried to be quote unquote, or the New York Times described it quote unquote as the sensitive guy at the dog fight, you know. <laughs> and I think that's what many American men were becoming. They they had they had to address their feminine sides. They had to address being empathetic, sympathetic, loving characters. They had to understand the full there were many more demands on them to be great fathers, many more demands on them to be um Loving husbands, they began to understand the difficulties of the the, the consequences of domestic violence, and uh, of you know they had this. There was a new phrase called anger management, which often was directed at men. And with time, you had less time to spend with your buddies. And I think 
You had therefore had less outlets to understand what it meant to be a man. You had less time if you were growing up to have role models that were male and stronger male figures. So men were trying to define themselves more than they had in previous decades, especially in the in the wake of the sec of second wave feminism in the seventies. So, what's your next project? And you you also write children's books, so that that sounds like it might be a good uh, change of pace from this. Yeah, I just probably in the middle of it. There's a book with Nancy called that my wife called uh, "With Any Luck I'll Drive a Truck," which is still out there. And uh, but I don't know. I've you know I'm I'm still you know I'm still riding this horse of Vanity Fair and what's happening is as Graydon uh, decides. Uh, uh, he, he's going to be here till the end of the year, and we have, we're, uh, you know, Vanity Fair will be uh, moving forward, and, and I've got to focus on that. And I'm just basking in the in in this. The you know, book was published uh, re- relatively recently, and I'm really excited to to see what the future holds with with the book. And this, and I'm going to enjoy this. I'm going to take take it, take it. It's 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 a uh, enjoy the ride, and I enjoy talking to you too. Well, we've been talking with David Friend. You can find his book, The Naughty 90s, in stores right now. David, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you. I'm Joanna Schaffhausen. I'm the author of The Vanishing Season, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Wallace Shawn in the office with us. His new book is Night Thoughts. Wallace, I'm so glad you could join us. Thank you so much. So, um, Night Thoughts, are these thoughts that keep you up at night, or is night when you have that clarity of thought that makes you want to write your thoughts down? Well, I think in this case, the person, me, is alone in a hotel room at night, And I suppose a certain calmness takes over, and sometimes we're frightened at night and think of terrifying things. I do a little of that in the book, but um, it's also less frantic time when we can reflect. I think that's more what the book is. It's really uh, as if... Everything I've ever thought in my whole life occurred to me on one night. What a lovely concept. <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm picturing the scene here. And um, you've made a, a career as a playwright out of writing life as you see it, um, sort of pushing against the idea of naturalism, of, of this, this faux natural... Uh, attitude that people often take in plays and films and really trying to capture how humans really think and really talk. Is there an element of that in this book as well? Well, this book is basically everything I think about everything. And um, I could have written it in a uh, more essayistic way, a little bit more rationally. Maybe I should have, but uh, it's full of uh, leaps that are uh, intuitive rather than strictly rational, even though if you actually read the whole book, you know, it's 75 pages long, but they're small pages. It's a very short book. If you read the whole book, it actually is a logical argument, I suppose. But uh, I can't help my years of practice as a writer of plays and a writer who uses the unconscious mind a lot. I couldn't help writing even this book in a way that uh, includes irrationality. You know, in this book, which we gave a starred review to so uh it seems like uh whatever your your instinct was was right um you you talk about uh you reflect on how the u.s is abandoning uh its quote uh cultivation of intellect and that's something that seems to be on your mind well i do think that um many of our problems and and horrifying characteristics stem from uh what can I say? A lack of um, 
development of our minds. I mean, for example, to take a story from the day's headlines, Mm -hmm. people spent large sums of money on this uh, election in Georgia competing with each other to spend more and more money. And it ended up being the most expensive race in history. Well, money is about advertising. And uh, except for the Publishers Weekly announcement, advertising tends to be about uh, ludicrous forms of deception and uh, rather transparent lying and attempts to associate things that uh, are not really connected. All of that money is spent on the assumption that the people watching the ads are not very capable of thinking or analyzing. If Noam Chomsky watched either the Democratic ads or the Republican ads, he wouldn't be swayed because he could analyze these ads and see them for the nonsense that they are. So I I think there's a tragic uh, lack of development of people's analytical abilities. I mean, and I sort of go into this a bit in the book. In my view, every baby that's born reasonably healthy is capable of, would have been capable of development to the point at least where they could read a newspaper and say, oh, well, I see the assumptions underlying this article and I don't agree with them or I do agree with them. I think that people are potentially bright enough to deal with our world, and yet we're conditioned to be uh, idiotic. And I feel that even artistic things help to make us smarter. And if you uh, refuse to... uh, read difficult books and you refuse to listen to more difficult music, you're training yourself possibly to be stupider than you could be. And I think it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's cruelly imposed on poor people that they are, are not trained and then it's... Uh, sort of crazily imposed on the rich people by themselves, particularly in this country. And you you say even the arts, but I would say especially the arts, though as someone in the business of the arts, of course, I would say that. But I I think, as as you say, that that is how we train ourselves, um, especially once we're past the age of schooling, that that's that's how you keep educating yourself. Well, I believe that, but but it's, uh, you know, it's hard to prove it. You you talk about a class in the book, and, and you yourself say you were lucky to be born into privilege. And I'm just, uh, you say that, you, you, it's kind of like the class of the lucky. You talk about the lucky and the unlucky. Um, and, and you talk about, like in U.S., Europe, elsewhere, there's, that we owe the prosperity to the unjust exploitation of the unlucky. Can you talk a little bit more on that? Well, I suppose this has been my biography, or if there's anything interesting about me, it's uh, the fact that, uh, and it's not interesting to most people, but it's a little bit novel, far from unique. But I did eventually come to understand, as a privileged person, that uh, my privilege, as the word would suggest, is uh, based on the the exploitation of other people, so that uh, there are people... In other words, I live in the United States, and uh, I had a quote-unquote good education here, and uh, so it would be very unlikely that I would not be eating three meals a day and living a life that uh, most people in the world would find to be privileged. And the magnificence of our industrial society is 
partly based on the exploitation of the poor of the past, slavery, which made very cheap raw materials that made the industrial revolution in this country uh, possible and easy and remarkable. And, of course, the murder of the original inhabitants, free land, uh, and then the exploitation of the whole world today. I mean, we laugh at Trump going to see the Saudis and saying how much he loves them, but he is not doing anything dramatically different from every other American president. I mean, we have... There, there are people who live in that part of the world who might have liked to have a society that uh, looked after their own interests rather than the interests of the United States. But a lot of people all over the world get up every day and basically work to keep us in uh, a good situation with cheap oil or what have you. And then we pay taxes to support the wars that keep the status quo in place, even though, yes, we criticize them. Somebody like myself, I criticize those wars, and some of them are probably very counterproductive and are not really benefiting me at all. I don't know, though. The general project of uh, keeping the world safe for the status quo probably has benefited me. I mean, I've been around during the whole period in which uh, the United States has tried to shape the entire world to its uh, needs. And uh, I suspect, even though I have protested some of the things that have gone on, I've benefited more you know, I've gotten more out of that system than I have taken away from it, let's say. So returning back to your your theme of, of intellect and of people improving upon their own, if, if we undertook a sort of concerted project in that direction, do you think people would eventually sort of begin to educate themselves really about these, these costs and these actions on a global scale and, and try to shift the way that America is going? Or do you think we're all too comfortable? Well, it's very, very hard to give up uh, comfort. It's very hard to uh, intentionally lower your standard of living. It really is hard to give up... Uh, I mean, people who are sick and the doctor says, you know, you... You can't eat ice cream anymore. They're upset. So it's not an easy thing to ask people to uh, diminish their standard of living. But I would say because of the uh, problem of the climate, the issue of justice in the world is, is almost uh, going to be secondary. So that, yes, I think rational people even cruel ones who are indifferent to the suffering of other people if they have compassion for their own grandchildren and they're rational they're going to be in favor of pretty big changes in uh, our world I mean there are some people whose devotion to the status quo is, is so uh, entrenched uh, I don't know what to say about them. I mean, Trump, for example, I don't know him personally. I just see him on, you know, uh, from his actions, it seems that he he doesn't care that much. It doesn't hurt him that much that uh, people suffer and that maybe even the suffering of his own grandchildren might not bother him. I don't know. Or... It could be that he he genuinely is intellectually confused. I, I've never thought that his denial of global warming was sincere. 
I always assumed he just uh, cared more about, uh, you know, the profits of the oil companies or to be more generous to him, the number of jobs that people have. But now I'm sort of thinking maybe he really, his brain is scrambled in some strange way that I don't understand. And he, he half believes that it's all a myth. So we're talking about economy, we're talking about class, we're talking about intellect. Uh, in, at one point, you, you refer to yourself as, as someone who, I mean, you're a successful playwright, actor, writer, as someone who is downwardly mobile. What do you mean by that? Well, I don't think people are capable of um, handling violence. I don't think people are qualified to impose violence on other people. If there were such a thing as, as imposing violence in a fair and just way, I don't think people would be capable of it. So I sort of am thinking if the world were to change and poor people were to rise up and... Uh, uh, make a change on the planet, is there any way to avoid the massacre of people like myself? I think maybe we should, um, privileged people should should weaken themselves and possibly eliminate themselves as privileged people. And so I talk a little bit in the book about my teachers in school who interestingly did not say to us you must go forth and become even more privileged and do whatever you have to do to push other people out of the way on the contrary they sort of said competition is really not a good thing you should really just relax and let your grasp on these things go. And indeed, everybody that I know, including me, I know one or two exceptions, but almost everybody that I grew up with economically is on a slightly lower plane than their parents were. And socially, you could say, on a slightly lower plane. I mean, I was privileged as a kid, and then in my 20s, I, I wasn't particularly privileged, except that I had friends that I could borrow from. I mean, I lived off of borrowing. And uh, then I got into being uh, an actor, and I was rather successful at that, at least in the 80s. And, uh, and every once in a while, I still get a good job. So I became a sort of privileged person for a second time, really. I mean, when I go into a building uh, that is above my station, uh, let's say a fancy hotel that I sneak into to use the men's room, uh, I'm kicked out. Uh, there's something about me that uh, doesn't make people feel they can't throw me out. Hmm. And I expect to be kicked out of places more than I really am. And uh, I suppose that is just a form of mental illness. But uh, I am definitely downward mobile in the sense that... Uh, Neither of my parents would have been kicked out, nor, nor would they have tried to sneak in anywhere. Uh, and this is true of most of the people that I grew up with. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. 
I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Wallace Shawn, author of Night Thoughts. And true to the topic of the book or the the concept of the book, we're wandering far and wide. (laughs) Uh, You mentioned taking intuitive leaps in in the book. Do you have any that that were particular favorites that kind of tickled you and you went, oh, oh, this is a good one. I love this one. Uh... No, I don't mean to make intuitive leaps. I I actually set out to be pretty logical in the structure of the book. But it it um, I'm trying to tell a few stories simultaneously, one on top of the other, and I'm trying to uh, express the best way that I know how. You know, basically, my conclusions about the world, uh, not on the assumption that I will necessarily uh, die or be senile next week, but it could, it gets more likely every week, let's put it that way. So it ended up being the case that I I had to uh, make some, I had to make some... I had to leave it to the reader to to uh, piece it all together, which is sort of my preference anyway. Like the, I mean, even in writing plays, the audience in my plays, if there are any, they 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 have to they have a big role to play. They have to uh, put things together. One of the things you mentioned earlier uh, about the uh, uh, challenges of, of music rising to more maybe complex or uh, intellectually stimulating music, and you write about Beethoven. What, what does Beethoven do for you? <laughs> well, I mean, I, for me, it's, uh, it's tragic that uh, everybody doesn't listen to classical music because I think everybody is very capable of uh, enjoying classical music and yet a tremendous number of people in all classes consider that it's out of range for them well Beethoven is uh, I suppose I don't know the most experimental of composers and uh, maybe wrote the most beautiful music at times but also sort of uh, experimented with ugliness uh, in a remarkable way and uh, with uh, shock, you know, doing things that, uh, let's say he was very courageous and uh, opened up an awful lot of possibilities. And his music is, uh, I don't know, very... His his quartets, I mean, from the early ones to the late ones, are an expression of uh, human possibility that uh, couldn't help uh, making any listener a wiser person. And it's, uh, yeah, it's kind of heartbreaking that uh, only a handful of people actually ever listen to this stuff. Mm. It sounds like it has that same philosophy as yours in a way, that it makes the audience work for it. Well, yes. I mean, Beethoven was probably, uh, you know, one of the early early people who who had a slightly more, slightly aggressive attitude toward an audience and sort of felt uh, that it was up to them to come halfway. What role does playwriting play in your life? I mean, you, you, you've written a book, you've acted, but your most recent book was Evening at the Talk House. Right. Uh, well, that's a play. It's been published as a book right. by TCG Books. I mean, basically, I write plays because I enjoy doing that, and I can get away with it, and I haven't been too uh, discouraged to quit 
I mean, it's what I think of if I have to give myself an identity, which I don't really, but uh, I suppose if you woke me up in the middle of the night and asked what, you know, what, what do you do? I would say I'm a playwright. I have been writing plays. Maybe I'm breaking the illusion of your listeners that the guy they're listening to is 25 years old. I've actually been writing plays for 50 years. And, well, I sort of believe in my plays in a sort of ignorant way. I mean, you know, obviously, uh, after I'm dead, maybe somebody will pass a definitive judgment on them. I believe in them. And uh, a certain number of other people, a few, also do. And others think they're, well, worthless in a way. So I haven't had the uh, kind of validation as a playwright that, uh, let's say, I don't know, Harold Pinter had. But I have a theater obsession and I have for a very, very long time, I mean, which even includes going to see plays more than a normal person would. I really enjoy watching the actors act, even if it isn't a play that I particularly connect with, to use the type of language people would use in the theater. I mean, I, I have a theater obsession, and I... I enjoy writing plays. And yes, I mean, I feel if I were empowered anonymously to defend my plays and say why they had value, I could give a lecture on that topic. But, you know, that's not for me to to say. And you got into acting from playwriting, that you, you wanted to understand the, the actor's side of things. You sort of stumbled into it accidentally. Well, I studied it a little bit. I mean, I'm, I am a fake actor. I have not studied, you know, the way, well, the way I would have wanted to if I thought I was going to do it professionally. You know, I would have learned how to fence and lose speech impediments and all the rest of it but didn't I never thought that I would be a professional actor but I did study a little bit just a little bit uh I didn't go to a you know a Juilliard or NYU I I s- spent several months at the wonderful HB studio on Bank Street in New York where pretty much anybody can go and uh, study mm-hmm. acting you can go you know, one night a week, or I sort of went full-time for a few months. And uh, then I forgot about it for many years. And then, uh, mysteriously, through writing plays, I got put in one. Uh, And uh, in the, you know... the, The years between, say, 24... I was 20 between being 24 and 35. I didn't have any real plan for making a living. I hadn't really even formulated the idea that I wanted to be a bourgeois person and lead a bourgeois lifestyle. I just sort of did various jobs of different kinds. uh, And I borrowed a lot of money. And then uh, when I was put in this play, I almost immediately got put into the movies. And actually, well, that was the peak of my career as an actor was at the beginning. I mean, I was paid, you know, within, say, five years of becoming an actor, I was probably paid, say, five times more for an hour than I'm worth today as an actor. Those were the really good days. I paid back my debts, and th- but then I stuck with it. And I even became ambitious as an actor and wanted to, uh, you know, do more. 
What's it been like for you being a, a sort of nerd cult figure uh, from your work in The Princess Bride and Star Trek and the, these um, sort of fantastical productions um, that feel fairly divorced from the New York playwriting life? I mean, I can't really explain it. I mean, it. it I'm not a big believer in the self, that there is a unified creature at the center of one's body. I don't know. Maybe there's more than one, or I'm confused by the topic. I've written about it. Maybe because of my odd life, I'm more confused than some other people. Yes, I mean, uh, people come up to me on the street and say, you're that guy defining my identity, but not in the way that I would. They do recognize me. I mean, it's it's me, apparently. Uh, so I can't say to them, well, no, I'm not that guy. I'm a different guy. That would be insane, literally. I mean, being an actor is strange anyway, because you... Well, I suppose it isn't strange if you believe... I don't know what English actors used to believe. I don't think English actors even believe this anymore, that you... uh, It isn't you. You're impersonating a character. And supposedly, you know, Laurence Olivier would, would first take out makeup and change the shape of his nose and he would say well this you know I I think this character has this kind of nose and I'm going to give him this kind of voice and this kind of a walk but most actors I know don't do that English or American it's us really Uh, I mean and in my case in a way, being a kind of fake actor who really never studied and doesn't know what actors do, it's nothing else but me with these different circumstances. So, you know, the TV show The Good Wife, I played a sort of, well, a criminal, really, who was threatening people and... uh, was uh, quite frightening, although I had a friendly personality when I was threatening them. But basically it was just, well, if if these were my circumstances, I didn't even think about it, you know. I mean, because there's a, there's a limited amount of thinking that I'm capable of doing or that I want to do when I'm trying to play a part in... Uh, I just sort of, it was me, but instead of being a playwright, I was a guy who threatened to kill people. If they, I mean, for instance, witnesses who were, my boss didn't want to appear in court. So you just, you put yourself in those shoes. Because I actually believe that that could be me. And, uh, Well, I know it could be. And, you know, I've had circumstances where I've, uh, you know, I've done, I've had an easy time without, uh, you know, being involved in the underworld. Uh, But, uh, you know, I know that I would be capable of of that. And... uh, This is, in a way, comes into the book as well, because I think we all, I mean, acting is is a very interesting way of exploring some of the things that you're capable of. And uh, I do think we are all capable of wisdom, on the one hand, and... uh, cruelty, violence, sadism on the other and uh, 
But of course, nations are capable of these things too, large agglomerations of people. And uh, so the whole question is how how can we uh, bring the better part of ourselves to the front? And... Uh, Avoid being destroyed by the the destructive part of ourselves, which, and I think what one of the things I talk about in the book is that when I was growing up, people assumed the best about uh, human beings and particularly Americans. Everybody just sort of thought, wow, humans are great and Americans are absolutely delightful. And now we've seen that these things are, you know, not not true. I mean, this is speaking of Americans. Obviously, Europeans were not going around in the 1940s when I was born and saying, wow, human beings are great. They were asking the right questions. I mean, they were saying we're not great and how can we protect ourselves from ourselves we've been talking with wallace sean you can find his book night thoughts in stores right now wallace thank you so much for joining us this has been a real pleasure thank you so much for having me beyond the headlines beyond the routine beyond the book i'm chris keneally host of copyright clearance and his podcast series beyond the book and i'm andrew albany senior writer at publishers weekly Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another scintillating author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. So check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 